This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. I am your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Boeing. Uh, as we mentioned last week, the Starliner's been having some problems, and they are, uh, as expected, going to delay that that shoot and take it back for repairs. We'll talk about JetBlue entering the transatlantic market, Germany selling off a bit of their Lufthansa stake, and then a lot of stuff in the EVTOL world. We'll talk about one design today, this interesting transwing EVTOL we're going to talk through some more drama with Archer and Whisk, uh, Joby now being public, and some of the forecasts about EVTOLs, whether um, all these companies in the market are on board or if there's still some skepticism. So, Alan, how are you, sir? Was this Boeing Starliner delay? Um, did you see that coming? Well, they had to take it back to a place where they could examine all these vowels and figure out what the root cause of it was. I, I was always surprised when Boeing said they're going to try to debug it and possibly get back up on the launch pad. That didn't make a lot of sense because I think NASA would just immediately say, no, there's no way you're going to do that, guys. Yeah. Take your ball and go home. Right. Right. And I understand the typical approach to it is to tell your customer, NASA in this case, that you want a little bit of time to digest what's happened and maybe it's something really simple. And it could it could have been something really simple. However, even in that case, uh, you don't want to be launching it because it's you, you, Boeing can't afford to have another bad launch. So even if the program, the local people wanted to launch it because they thought it may be okay to fly, I, w- I would be surprised that NASA slash Boeing upper management would say it's okay. They, I think they would put a stop to it. So this, this is a really interesting quandary right now because NASA over the next couple of months is pretty busy. There's a lot of launches that are going to happen, and there's not going to be a lot of slots open for Boeing to slip in there and try to do their launch because it's not just put the rocket on the pad and shoot it. It, There's a lot of prep stuff that has to happen before it's launched, so you need this block of time to to get everything up and going. And I don't know if they're going to be able to do it this year, saying we're in essentially late August now. It may be very difficult to get a launch off this year, which you think would affect Boeing's stock price somewhat. Don't you think, Dan, that, that with all the other things going on with Boeing, that's the one sort of real pain point that hasn't gone away, and that'll always come up top, on especially people are you know small investors, large investors are going to be poking at that for for months. You think until they get a successful launch, that that's just. Yeah, I don't know how the contract works, like how they get paid, all that. I mean, uh, but yeah, I mean, the stock market being as emotional as it is financial, um, as irrational as it is, is rational. So, um, yeah, you'd think that would have some impact on its price, um, but we'll see. Well, we had, there were some really, really interesting podcasts this week that were in the same vein as ours last week, discussing about the culture at Boeing. And I thought, well, that's interesting because that's what you and I talked about, the saying that what what culture is and and the the commenter the commenter which I disagreed with was essentially saying 
Boeing's got a bad culture. They need to be able to flush people out of this thing because it, it is company wide. Well, that that can't be right. There's no way that the space launch people and the airplane people are are the same group of people and are acting in the same manner. I doubt that's the case. They're independent problems, right? Uh, and to lay it out as a total culture problem seems a little bit odd to me, but. That's a, that's what the discussion is in the aerospace community. Is Boeing is is has lost its luster, and Airbus is is doing great stuff. So why can't Boeing catch up and all that? That's what happens when you get into a string of bad luck, kind of quasi back luck events. It's it's deemed larger than it probably really is. Well, and everything gets also continue to blowing up in the news cycle. So um, you know it's hard to know what's true and what's not. It's not like there's another U.S plane maker that's this big so you know and i don't think the united states uh media cares about airbus that much because they're over in the uk like they care but not in the sense that it's not it's not a home their home team so you know boeing is the big commercial airliner in the u.s and obviously they they do the space work too but yeah it just seems like that's their cross to bear maybe just the fact that when they screw up they're just going to have to pay for it in the media yeah well, and, and the news cycle has been slow until this particular week uh, because everything has been COVID. And, but we get um, the president has made it this week really exciting. And so a lot of a lot of other news gets shuffled away. And and I think this latest Afghanistan thing is going to definitely provide Boeing a little bit of cover, or at least time to to regroup because he won't necessarily be in the spotlight as much when. American military and American foreign interests are involved, and that's all you're going to read for the next two weeks. Um, so Boeing has a little bit of cover here. Yeah, a lot going on for sure. So moving on, JetBlue um, is entering the transatlantic market, which is a first for them. Of course, Southwest, um, one of the other domestic-only carriers, is still sticking to their guns. Uh, but JetBlue is um, starting with a JFK to London Heathrow Airport route, and they will be flying on a a321LR. So, Alan, what's uh, what's your take on this aircraft first before we talk about JetBlue in general? Well, it's a great airplane. I mean, making that route, it's energy, it's efficient, it's modern, it's new. It has all the all the things that JetBlue is known for. And I personally have not flown JetBlue, which seems crazy at this point because everybody I know has flown JetBlue. But where we live at, that there's there's not a lot of JetBlue flights of where we want to go. Uh, but maybe Dan, you have flown JetBlue and, and realize I don't think I have. Really? No, I think it's a lot. If you're a lot more up around New York, New Jersey, then I think there's a lot more access. I think I definitely have access to them. But like for me in DC, American Airlines is usually very, very cheap, and it's a good experience. And or Southwest. Um, so I don't have a typical need, like price wise, anything like that, to deviate from that, just because that's those are the kind of the two at you know in DC, but. I know if you're in New York, especially, what's their hub? Is it LaGuardia or is it JFK? But there's a lot of JetBlue flights out of there. But I, I don't route through New York that much, so I haven't had much ex- any experience with them. But the, the everybody who flies them loves them. And if you look at their customer response ratings, it's like, wow, that was a great experience. JetBlue really took care of me. The seating is nice. The airplanes are nice. They were the first ones to have uh, television and the seats so you could watch live, live TV. In fact, that's what it was called, live TV. And JetBlue owned the live TV satellite system. So they were one of the first to do that. So the customer experience there has always been 
exceptional but i personally haven't flown it people i have love it and are committed to it <laughs> wherever they fly is where they'll go go with them and uh, now they're going to go over to london heathrow that's a big deal because i think one of the pinch points flying to london in general is that if you're going to fly coach it's not really the best experience in the world and it's a longish flight five and a half six hours something like that um and so it's if you're like I used to do, I should do it all the time. And we were always flying in um, the back end of a 767. And that was never a lot of fun. <laughs> so maybe they can get people uh, just a better overall experience on those flights. And if, if, if and now that I, it sounds like vaccinated Americans can travel to the UK without being quarantined, this may that be that little entrance into that, into that uh, international route that will drive some traffic and give JetBlue a little taste of it because Southwest does fly outside the United States. They fly down to, to, to Mexico and some other places, but um, JetBlue really hasn't done that too much. And going across the Atlantic is, is impeding on others' territories, so to speak. You know, the United, the United and the Deltas of the world are not looking on that happily. Yeah. Well, if they have a good customer experience, then maybe it'll, uh, it'll work out well for them. You know, you want to be comfortable taken care of yeah yeah it's good yeah so germany uh is interested in selling off part about 25 percent of their 20 percent stake in lufthansa of course lufthansa got a six uh, billion euro bailout um last year and then of that the german government spent about 300 euros to acquire that 20 percent stake um so they want to sell about you know it'll be about total five percent of lufthansa or 25 percent of their 20 percent so math aside, um, have you flown Lufthansa? I mean, what, what's your take here on Germany being part owner? I mean, is that good or bad? Obviously, it's good to be bailed out. A lot of smaller companies don't get bailed out. But um, and why do you think Germany's doing this right now? Well, they, they need to, to keep that airline going. Obviously, it's, it's their um, main feeder internationally, Lufthansa. And, and it it has had a great reputation and when we flew it which has been years ago now uh it was a great experience we we really enjoyed it the the kicker here i think is just like in the 2008 uh collapse financial collapse and uh, with the automotive companies in the united states where the the federal government came in and said hey you're in trouble we're going to Put a bunch of money into you so we're going to own you on some level you're going to basically give a stock in your corporation and then when things pick up we'll we'll exit and cash out so it wasn't it wasn't like just a, a grant or a gift to the company um it was more of just a, a essentially a venture capital loan so to speak um to, to the whole yeah a holding place to, to get them over so that, that seems to be more of what uh, the governments are doing on these large corporations that run into these massive world-changing events, and they and they can't f survive to the other side. Is that instead of just writing checks and writing checks and writing checks with no hope of return, they're they're making investments and they're, they're making uh, investments on a, on a good side. They're, you know, they're, they're buying things cheap and hopefully selling it high. So the governments can can make some cash flow out of it. The United States government did when they bought GM and actually exited. They actually, the government actually made some money on that. So it's probably a better way than just pouring in cash. But I'm 
it it is that method of saving companies is not going to go away. I think because it has been successful in the United States and it's going to be successful with Lufthansa, looks like, you're going to see more and more governments do the stock exchange for cash event and own a, own a part of the company until they get back on their feet again. And what if the company doesn't, if their stock price is lower, I mean, is this actually a loan? I mean, uh, if they own a stake, that stake could just be down. Of course, I guess the government's going to try to be, yeah, going to try to be strategic about it. Yeah. You know, you remember a couple of years ago, uh, Bombardier, when they were in financial trouble on the C-Series, the, the government of Quebec, the provincial government, uh, threw them a lifeline too. And I, But they also owned, again, they owned part of the, com- the company. And I think they could, ca- I think they cashed out too when Airbus uh, took over. But th- that's, you know, I, I, there is just so there is a huge risk on the downside, right? But I, I I think that nations and governments are looking at it this way. I'm going to have so many unemployed. It's a lot better to take the risk to keep everybody employed, and for the, for the even if it's a fifty fifty chance of keeping them employed and getting them off the unemployment rolls, rather than going on the unemployment rolls, making the situation worse. And if it's close to an election time maybe me get throwing out of office, I'll, I will I will subsidize them in a way that feels okay to the marketplace, that the, the markets are going to get too upset about it. Because if I'm a, I'm a competitor, like when the GM thing happened, wasn't it for when GM and Chrysler, I think, both took cash from the federal government and the U.S. actually owned a portion of them. But I think Ford told the U.S. government no. You remember that? During the 2008, I think Ford told them, no, we don't need the money. They're the only one that not to do that, which was unusual. And I think the, the, this is the Bush administration, then the Obama administration, really insistent, like, you're going to take this cash. And uh, I think Ford eventually did not do it because you create this market disparity thing going on. If there are a couple of players and say it's Lufthansa and uh, I'm sure there's more airlines in Germany. If there's another airline that didn't get an investment, it feels uneven. Right. Uh, but but if it if in the United States, if it were to happen to a Boeing, I don't think anybody would really care because it's Boeing or nobody. So that, that's that's the trade off. All right. So moving on to our EVTOL segment. First, we've got a rate this design for her lineup for Alan here. So this is an interesting one. Uh, it's a trans wing from uh, Terra Dynamics and just the way these wings fold up is is crazy um obviously the first thing that this screams to me as a aerospace outsider is complexity that seems really complicated um they talk about their dihedral pivots um you know but in general this seems like a pretty difficult transition from uh vertical flight to horizontal flight alan i mean what's your what's your take on this design it looks really sleek it looks really interesting um and, you know, there continues to be more and more outside-the-box EVTOL designs. And uh, I think this is the first we've seen in this one. But, I mean, have you seen trans-wing designs before? Not on a human flight, no. Uh, at least not on any large scale. And th- this is sort of unique because I think we have the, now the computational power to look at aerodynamics on a, a wing that really transforms from essentially facing aft with the propellers providing vertical thrust to then rolling forward into forward flight and, and twisting at the same time so that the, the propellers are providing thrust forward. That's a big transition between those two is where 
problems occur, right? So if you had some sort of jammed one, if you can imagine, Dan, you get one, you know, like your right side jams and your left side continues to move forward, you're going to get this imbalance and the aircraft's going to want to roll over and drive itself into the ground. So the safety systems have to be ungodly complicated, probably, to prevent that from happening. It's got to, you could do it mechanically, you can do it electronically, but you can't allow that sort of imbalance, thrust imbalance to happen when there's so much happening at one time. And the, and if you're in, in a flight mode like that, do you have trouble with wind gusts? Do you have trouble with uh, any odd aerodynamic situation that happens on flight that, 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 that a normal fixed wing aircraft just flies right through and nothing happens? If you're in that weird transition stage between forward flight and vertical flight and you do get some sort of wind gust or some unique um, aerodynamic situation, does it fly properly? And that's one of the things that flight test will tell you, right? That the flight test is going to go look at all those weird transitions to make sure the aircraft is is safe, and the FAA will demand it. Um, so if they're if they're serious about doing it, it it's like the ducted fan issue, which uh, a lot of aircraft companies have have dropped. Is that the reason they drop it? Is because in those transitions, aerodynamically, you can't do everything you want to do, and you can't do it always safely. There's some there's occasionally you know, these weird aerodynamic effects that will make the aircraft unstable. That's that's the trouble. That's going to be the trouble. Yeah, and they, they talk about this in this article from New Atlas. Uh, it seems to cover it pretty well, and there's, of course, some YouTube videos showing flight. Um, but it says that they're aerodynamically benign at all stages of transition between fully folded and fully extended, so that you're not going to lose control as you shift. But, um, yeah, I don't, so I don't know. I guess there was no but there for me. Um, but they, uh, they like, they, li- you know, they like the design. And, uh, I guess the question is why is different always better? That's what, you know, I ask. It, it could be better. And you have to look at it as an entire system. You, you can't look at it as the, 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 the motion of the wings transforming from floor forward to vertical flight is the only piece of it. There's a lot of variables there to look at. And the FAA system has been at least more recently very effective at, at evaluating those those different modes of flight and looking at the criticality of them and determining where the weak spots are in the design and what little safety features you're going to put in to prevent those from occurring so there's a rigorous process now and that process has really developed over the last 20 years in my opinion to be much more rigorous than it was in the past so those these designs are where if you're just an aerodynamics person and it's a cool design, it looks cool, and people write checks for it, that's great. But if you're going to actually certify it and make it like a Part 23 airplane, you still have a lot of homework to do, and you still have a lot of demonstration to show that the aircraft is safe. And that's where many, many of these aircraft designs go away. Because when you start delving into the to the very fine details of safety, you're going to Normally, the world will happen. They'll find this missing link, this thing they can't really solve um, safety-wise, and they're stuck. Yeah. Well, it's a cool design. I mean, it looks, their YouTube videos are great, so kudos to them on, on sharing what they've got, and it's really interesting. So, you know, I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed for them. So moving on, uh, we've talked about the Archer versus Whisk fight, and now, since Whisk initially obviously filed this lawsuit against Archer, um, Archer has sent one back now seeking a billion dollars in damages from Whisk, uh, basically saying that this is a malicious 
uh, lawsuit and that they should be hold, held accountable for doing this to us. Um, Alan, did you expect this step in the drama? No. Uh, why would you want to extend the drama and keep the lawyers rolling? <laughs> I, that makes no sense to me. To get paid back for 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 those legal fees? I mean, I mean that's that's never going to happen. That's not going to happen. I, I just even if it does happen, it's going to happen so far out in the future. It's not going to make your business more profit or successful. If you're if you're in any sort of business, you really got to pay attention to what the bottom line is saying. And maybe they think they have a billion dollars of damage. They're not worth. That doesn't that doesn't really make any sense. Let's say they're not worth a billion dollars. Maybe they're worth a billion dollars because the stock price says that they're going to be worth a billion dollars, but. You think that's a billion dollars worth of damages for a company that doesn't barely exist, doesn't really have a flying model yet? No. No, and I think if you got in front of a judge, they would probably toss it out. But do, do what is the point of this? If you're really trying to create an airplane and get it into uh, service, do you think your customers want to see you fighting with the, another company all the time instead of devoting all your resources to creating the aircraft in which they're paying for it, it, it eats up CEO time. It eats up upper management time. You spend a bunch of money on lawyers. You're not devoted entirely 100% onto actually building the aircraft and getting it manufactured. And that, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense. And so if you reach a truce of some sort, which they kind of had reached a truce a little bit, then just let it lie. You know, if if the other side starts to perk up and do something that's slanderous, okay, great, go after them. But for the most part, ignore it, because if you get to a production airplane and you deliver it and you start making money, all the criticism just goes away. Poof, it's gone. None of it matters. None of it will matter. So this is a strange strategy, I think, because history is, not, not that history repeats itself, but it, this doesn't tend to work out very well. Hmm. And so it sounds like you would rather see them just stick to the business of making airplanes, um, you know, which is something that Joby, which is now public, um, is fixing to do. And they are, you know, pretty big, pretty well funded, and they have officially gone public. Their SPAC merger is now complete. Um, so now they're really, I don't know if they're in the home stretch. I don't know if this has changed that much, except for their, you know, they're on the stock exchange. But what what does this change? I mean, are they... What does their next couple of years look like? I mean, where are their challenges now that they're a public company? I, obviously, the management structure is going to change considerably just because of the way capital is coming in and who's asking for board seats and how that's all going to be arranged. And when, when they started off a couple of years ago, Joe Ben was running the company and it was pretty much a, it appeared from the outside like a solo effort, like he was driving this design. It was his creation a lot of engineers and good people working on on that on that concept and getting it to a, a flight vehicle but he didn't have a lot of outside forces in the boardroom so to speak giving a, a ton of direction now with the amount of cash they have coming into the business and so many of the people looking to to you know 10x multiply their investment there's going to be a lot of push in that business which Change, it changes everything, I think, in that who are, you, who are you listening to? Are you listening to the people that are actually making the design and making the manufacturing of the aircraft go? Or are you listening to 
noise in the boardroom because you kind of have to do both. You have to thread the needle. Is everybody on that upper management staff ready for that? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, well, I mean, do you see Joe Ben staying on the helm? I mean, obviously, this is going to be a big cash infusion. They're going to get at least a billion dollars from the steel, which is great. And they say they're going to use that for certification, which, as you discuss, they're definitely going to need. It's, you know, it's a hard process. The biggest hurdle left, um, well, among, among others. Um, I mean, do you see him staying on the helm or do you see someone with more air travel production coming on? The duration of most CEOs and aircraft companies doesn't is not very long. It just isn't. It's a very, very difficult business. So there's a couple of reasons why they get moved around. And one is financial, just meeting performance numbers. The, the second is it's just so damn stressful that it's not a place that you really want to be. It takes a special kind of individual to navigate those waters. And if you haven't done it before, you're, it's all new. Everything everything is happening now, especially with SPACs, is new. That's never happened before. So how do you manage all that in this? Because you have so many huge crises happening simultaneously. I got to get a manufacturing facility up and running. I got to get the design working. I got to deal with the FAA, which is just really starting. I got this board of directors I got to deal with. I got all this money coming in. I am now a publicly traded company. So now now I got to be careful about what I say. And that's not it's particularly hard, but Elon Musk has had trouble with that. And and at some point, you, you there's only – either you learn that through the attrition or you just have a natural gift for it. And I don't think anybody's really born with that. I think they have to go through the school of hard knocks to figure out what the right answer is there. But it's it's a – really, really, really difficult position to be in. And the, the the other added difficulty here is not not only are they going to run an aircraft manufacturing company, they're going to run a rideshare service on top of it. That's a huge amount of moving parts that you're trying to manage and take care of and make sure it has, has funding and every got the right people in place and all that. It's going to, it's just... The chances of being successful at are not very high. All right, so moving on, our last thing, you know, some big names in, um, you know, the aircraft space, including Stephen Uvarhazy, uh, who has the pretty amazing Uvarhazy Center, uh, bears his name up here in the uh, DMV area, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. Um, they're up the road in towards Reston. And, uh, you know, they talked to him in a re recent article, and he thinks the, um, the market is still pretty young. I mean, Alan, what do you feel like all these sort of aircraft lifers, how are, how are they looking when they've got such many years and decades of experience? How are some of these uh, folks maybe approaching the EVTOL sector? They're approaching it with a lot of caution. And I think rightly so, because historically, new airplane companies have not been very successful. You have to have something that's really world changing. And, and they don't necessarily have, and they don't have equipment that's necessarily that world altering for most people, because it makes the marketplace can be small. And in the case of Joby, they're not even really offering an aircraft, they're offering a rideshare services, which is what they were promoting on the New York Stock Exchange. They weren't promoting an aircraft. They're promoting an, um, a ride share sort of thing. And if you're an aircraft lesser and you're you're dealing with you know the United's of the world, 
you look at that and go, there's already people who want to fly on airplanes today and they don't do it. So you're going to have to create a new marketplace and you're going to have to drive demand. That's a really difficult thing to do. Airplanes are, airplanes are very difficult. They're very demanding. And you're, then you're just layering layers and layers of businesses on top, on top of that. So even seasoned executives realize the, the complexity and, and the unimaginable amount of time and human resources that ought to be devoted to something like that. And there's just a lot of risk. And every, I think a lot of professionals are seeing the, the risk part and saying, is it going to be worth the risk? We're not sure yet, but we're going to know in about a year and a half. I think we're going to know a lot more. Yeah, I mean, things have been changing so fast, but you're right that there's still not a, a really viable aircraft out there yet. Where then the infrastructure and all that's that the building out of the picture is going to make sense. We can really know how these are going to be used. So yeah, it's that makes sense that if you know if you've been around for a long time. And you're it's, you're still probably playing that that game of wait and see. So that's it for today's uh, episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, and we will hear, see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.